The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to the Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Cox, editor of Breaking Views. Congressman Jeb Hensarling, the chairman of the House Financial Services Committee, spent some time with us discussing his Financial Choice Act. It's basically a reform of the Dodd-Frank Banking Reform Act from the perspective of a conservative Republican from Texas, which, which kind of describes Jeb Hensarling. In fact, it's so far out of the mainstream that even Representative Hensarling doesn't think it has an ice cube's chance in hell, at least not in the current configuration of the U.S. Congress. But it does hold some charms for Donald Trump, who characteristically has said he'd trash the Dodd-Frank Act without offering any policy specifics on what he'd replace it with. That's why my colleague Gina Chon wrote of the Financial Choice Act that, quote, Donald Trump may have just received his first applicant for the role of Treasury Secretary. Congressman Jeb Hensarling's pitch to replace the Dodd-Frank Act looks pitched perfectly to land the Texas lawmaker an influential voice should the New York real estate mogul become president. I asked Hensarling about that. He said he has his hands full running the Financial Services Committee in the House at the moment. But I took that to mean, sure, he'd consider going to work for President Trump. Anyway, we talked through the various features of the bill, including how it would allow banks to opt out of current capital and liquidity requirements if they meet a 10 percent leverage ratio. That, of course, would require many of them to raise you know, as much as hundreds of billions of dollars. So, again, it's not likely that people in the banking industry are going to love it, but uh, Donald Trump just might. Give a listen to my chat with Congressman Jeb Hensarling. Well, Congressman, it's great to have you on the Exchange podcast. I know you were up here last week in New York unveiling your Financial Choice Act, talking to the financial community. I just thought it may be worth you explaining your thinking in proposing the bill. Many people, and us included, have sort of seen it as a sort of retort, as it were, to the the Dodd-Frank Reform Act itself. But uh, maybe we could just sort of tick through some of what you think are the key attributes and differentiators with with Dodd-Frank. Well, indeed, uh, Dodd-Frank has failed. We've had almost six years since its passage. Uh, Dodd-Frank promised that it would lift the economy, and instead we have the single weakest uh, recovery in our republic's history. We have small business lending at about a 20-year low, entrepreneurship also at about a 20-year low. We know that uh, median family income has uh, stagnated. We know that uh, bank accounts are lessened. So Dodd-Frank didn't lift the economy. It failed in that regard. So it needs to be replaced. Dodd-Frank also promised us that it would end too big to fail. And instead, what it did was it codified it into law. It allows the federal government to designate too big to fail firms and then back that up with a taxpayer-financed bailout fund. So it did not end too big to fail. And frankly, there is increasing consensus on both the left and the right of Dodd-Frank's failure in this regard. Yeah, can I just ask you, when you talk about failure, of, of I mean, one thing we haven't seen, of course, are, are massive failures of financial institutions. We've seen a decline in the number of uh, financial, sm- even smaller community banks that have gone bust. I mean, I just, in, in Dodd-Frank's defense here a little bit, we haven't had the, the a run on the banking system, which it seemed to be was its major uh, response. Well, I'd hope that given that 2008 represented the second worst economic crisis in the republic's history, that it would not soon replicate itself. But one of the reasons is, is because we have vastly stronger capital today than what we had 
uh, preceding the financial crisis. I and others would say that it's still not enough, and we need more private capital, and we need less federal control. And an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. Probably the single largest determinant of the financial crisis was a uh, regulatory system that helped uh, convince, cajole, mandate financial institutions to put people into homes they could not afford to keep. It was the failure of an entire asset class, uh, particularly subprime mortgages, that almost brought down the entire financial system. Dodd-Frank did not fix that. And Dodd-Frank didn't uh, impose new capital requirements that couldn't have already been imposed prior to Dodd-Frank. And the last thing I would say about the act uh, is that it promised it would make the, um, you know, an ending too big to fail. What we also know is the big banks are bigger and the small banks are fewer. We're losing a financial institution, a community financial institution a day in America, and they're not dying of natural causes. And because of all these broken promises, because we have a weak recovery, people aren't escaping poverty, middle-income people aren't getting ahead, uh, that we need, in a, in a phrase, we need economic growth for all, bank bailouts for none, and that's the purpose of the Financial Choice Act, which uh, stands uh, for creating hope and opportunity for investors, consumers, and entrepreneurs. And what we're trying to do is essentially say, if you'll put a whole lot more private capital into the system, you will get a whole lot less federal control. And that we're talking about an industry that's one of the most highly regulated industries before and after the financial crisis. And again, federal regulators got it wrong in the first place, and in many respects, making the economy even more dangerous. And so uh, that's essentially it. It is trading off complexity for simplicity, trading off private capital for taxpayer money, replacing bailouts with bankruptcy and promoting economic growth. So one of the key attributes seems to be this uh, leverage ratio that you propose, which is a sort of 10% uh, capital to assets ratio, which, of course, would be a, a, a certainly a lot higher than most of them are, are subject to today. It would be a whole lot higher than what is currently required. It would be a whole lot more required than what was required in Dodd-Frank, and we believe ultimately, um, if you look historically in America, at uh, leverage ratios that, for example, preceded the federal safety net of either the Federal Reserve's discount window or deposit insurance, uh, that those were in the neighborhood of about 13 to uh, 15 percent. If you look at studies from McKinsey and Company, uh, from the Bank of England, from both U.S. and global financial institutions, you won't find a major institution that failed that had at least a 10 percent a simple leverage ratio. So I'm not going to guarantee that uh, no financial institution will ever fail uh, at that level, but it seems somewhat tantamount to having a uh, 100 or 200 year um, um, building in a 100 to 200 year floodplain. Yeah, no, it's, it's a lot of, of safety and security. It would be, a, I mean, for a lot of these institutions, they'd have to raise, you know, tens. I mean, I don't know what the, across the entire uh, industry, you're talking perhaps hundreds of billions of dollars of new capital, which I well, it probably is hundreds of billions of dollars to help uh, prevent, uh, to put, to, to mix metaphors, an even stronger firewall in place. But also, it's a trade-off, and it's voluntary. So under the Financial Choice Act, no financial institution is forced to raise more equity capital. Uh, it's a choice, and many of them may choose to do so. Uh, many of them may not choose to do so. They don't have to choose to do it overnight. 
And another way of hitting the leverage ratio is, frankly, shrinking the balance sheet as well. And so we do not attempt to um, downsize banks. We don't attempt to supersize banks, but we do attempt to right-size banks through market discipline. And you're offering them a carrot, a few carrots, I suppose. So what, 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 Well, hopefully we're offering a bushel load of carrots in a free society that believes in free enterprise is the ability to lift people out of poverty and for them to earn their success. Uh, we want an injection of market discipline. We want an injection of innovation, all of which are languishing now. I mean, I, you know, I think we've had maybe two new bank charters, if I recall correctly, since Dodd-Frank was enacted. We used to have about 100, 150 a year. Uh, we know that uh, free checking uh, at banks has been cut in half. We know there are 15% fewer credit card offerings. They're costing approximately 200 basis points more. Uh, many uh, Americans are now having to pay $500 more for their auto loans. All of this is courtesy of the regulatory onslaught, the, the sheer weight, volume, mass, complexity, uncertainty of the Dodd-Frank volume. And so we want to release bankers to be able uh, to finance the American dream, and there's an incentive to do it. And I mean, and yet, uh, it, from my understanding, the Wall Street crowd wasn't wasn't exactly taken by the proposal. Well, according to the New York Times, they weren't. <laughs> <laughs> but, what, but from what I can tell, though, major institutions, they, the, the reason they don't is in part because they've made their peace with Dodd Frank, and and even though there are elements they well, that may be true. I didn't write this. Um, we didn't write this bill to please big banks. We, uh, as I'm fond of saying, I'm not necessarily pro business. I'm pro free enterprise. And, um, you know, ultimately the shareholders of the ins these institutions will make a determination. So many institutions, um, you know, there is to some extent a, 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 a Faustian bargain between Wall Street and Washington. There are those on the left who essentially want to turn our major uh, financial center, our money center banks, into the functional equivalent of utilities so that they can politically allocate uh, capital in our society. And my guess is there are some people in Wall Street who are willing to accept that, knowing they can never fail, that they will always be bailed out. They're willing to pay the price of having federal regulators uh, embedded in their banks and directing capital. Others do not, but ultimately it will be the shareholders of the institutions who I think will make these determinations. Some of these banks have now spent hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars on Dodd-Frank compliance, uh, and uh, a few of the heads of large money center banks have acknowledged this as a competitive advantage that they have because they know that the regional banks and the community banks uh, cannot uh, deal, again, with the uh, expense and volume and complexity of the Dodd-Frank regulatory onslaught. So that may be another reason that they perhaps might be at peace. Well, it's certainly true that uh, they pay less for their for their deposits uh, than the smaller banks do. You can certainly see that in the FDIC numbers that come out every quarter. Um, but one one thing, uh, question. You know, you are, okay. You're on the right side of things. Uh, there are folks on the left side. When you think of Bernie Sanders or you think of Elizabeth Warren, who've who've also been quite critical of the banks, and yet. I was I was struck by uh, Elizabeth Warren's calling your the, the Choice Act, the Financial Choice Act, a wet kiss to Wall Street, and yet Wall Street doesn't seem to regard it that way. Well, it's not the first time that the Harvard professor didn't do her homework. Uh, so if she would pay a little closer attention, uh, she might know that many of the big banks actually do not support this, 
and my guess is, again, uh, as has been reported in the New York Times and other publications, many are quite satisfied with Dodd-Frank. Again, the greatest indictment of Dodd-Frank is that the big banks have gotten bigger. Uh, this is exactly what Dodd-Frank claimed they would not do. And so um, the uh, senator from Massachusetts uh, has her slogan. She just doesn't have her facts. All right. Speaking of which, you also have embedded in the act some talk about uh, or some rules about oversight of independent agencies and watchdogs. I mean, well, we have a title that has to do with Washington accountability, and we have a title that has to do with Wall Street accountability. We will have the toughest fines uh, and penalties for financial wrongdoing that have ever uh, existed in America, far and above those that were imposed upon Dodd-Frank, which may be another reason why some financial institutions may, be not, may not support the Financial Choice Act. With respect to Washington, though, uh, we are also losing our freedoms and our opportunities. We're losing the rule of law to the discretion of regulators. And so part of what we're trying to do is put financial uh, regulatory institutions on budget, uh, have them governed by bipartisan commissions, subject them to cost-benefit analysis, which is also known as common sense, that when rules are made, uh, are they actually going to help job creation, help economic growth, or are they not? Subject them to something called the RAINS Act, which is to ensure that ultimately Congress, the elected representatives of we the people, have the ultimate say-so on rules that have significant impact uh, to the economy. I mean, my job contract as a member of Congress comes up for renewal every two years, uh, and if people don't like the job I'm doing, they can vote to put somebody else in place. But these regulators who are, are can be abusive, walk all over due process, they're faceless, they're nameless, uh, there is no accountability to the American uh, people, and so we change that as part of the Washington Accountability does that, title does that, though, of the Financial make, Choice Act. I guess, um, does that, though, then make the agency far more subject to political whims that may also have the sort of the same, you're trying to, the same problem you're trying to solve for, right, which is um, if every, every year they have to come back and beg on their budget, how do they make long-term investments in technology or all those kinds of things? Well, probably the single most uh, important agency of the federal government, the Department of Defense, uh, does this and has done it from the dawn of the republic. There is nothing more important than we do than provide for the common defense, yet we have the Pentagon on budget and they're subject to congressional oversight. Why should these agencies uh, be any different? And the answer is they should not be any different. It is a matter of but, you know, it's a matter of accountability. And on a continuum, we can have a dictatorship by unelected, unaccountable bureaucrats, or we can have a democracy. Now, right. certainly there are flaws in democracy, but as Churchill said, democracy is the worst form of government, save every other form of government. This is a critical part of our foundational principle is to have checks and balances, is to have oversight, and indeed is enshrined in the Constitution that Congress has the power of the purse, and if it does not wield it properly, uh, then we, the people, can change out our elected representatives. It's a little more, more challenging on the unelected bureaucrats, and particularly at the Orwellian-named Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, to where there's not even probably the single most powerful unaccountable agency in the history of government, to where a previous Congress basically set up a national dictator for consumer financial products 
who single-handedly, one individual, not even a commission, but one individual, can determine whether or not a family gets a credit card, a checking account, an auto, an auto loan. I mean, that is just contrary to every foundational principle of the American people. Of course, one of the problems is, you know, you could see a scenario where a, the subject of a regulatory authority then uh, basically uh, lobbies a congressman or members of Congress who then take it out in some way or shape or form on the budget of that agency. I mean, I guess that's what that's the that, that would be the risk that one would cite for having sort of a Pentagon like uh, oversight of the budget. Well, the Justice Department is also subject to the annual appropriations process. in our Constitution. This is the way government right. is supposed to act, and it's probably one of the reasons that today, in many respects, Congress is not held uh, in high regard because Congress has yielded its power of the purse to an unaccountable agency of government, the rise of agency uh, government in particular. Uh, and, and so what we want this is a, in an open, free, democratic society, we want these things debated uh, in sunshine, and the people ought to have the ability to decide. Listen, I don't always like the uh, results of democracy. Uh, you know, for whatever reason, the United States of America elected Barack Obama twice to be their president. Um, you know, I, I, I wish they hadn't, but I haven't thought about stripping away the power uh, of the uh, of the vote away from the people because they made a bad decision. Right. What 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 about the Fed? When, where, how do you see their uh, you know monetary policy sort of within this whole context? Well, within the um, Financial Choice Act, we bifurcate the activities of the Fed, which have already been bifurcated, and that is between monetary policy and between their financial uh, regulatory policy. Their financial regulatory policy will be put on budget. Uh, their monetary policy will remain off budget, and we do see a distinction there. Uh, we do make uh, an exception to ensure that the Fed's monetary policy does remain independent in a, uh, when we have a, a fiat currency. So we do make that differentiation, but too often the Fed will cloak its prudential regulatory activities uh, behind this cloak of monetary policy, and we'll cloak it in secrecy. Uh, and that's not right. I mean, for example, the living will process, the stress test, all of this is very cloak and dagger uh, kind of stuff, and ultimately is being used to um, manage banks and engage in asset uh, allocation. And we just don't want to wake up one day and find out that our central bankers have instead become our central planners. So uh, there ought to be the disinfectant of sunshine uh, that comes into the regulatory side of the Fed. And do you, what about the monetary? I mean, do you think the monetary side is, is sufficient? Is there's a sufficient amount of sunshine um, refracted on that, on that? Well, what I would like is a monetary policy that followed some type of direction that was easily communicated to the American people and with the exception of extraordinary circumstances, was not improvisational so that people knew and could plan on what the value of their money would be. And so what I would hope for is that they would follow a more rules-based policy. They can make up that particular policy, but it has to be communicated to the American people. What are the variables that we consider? What is the relationship function between those variables? How can the American people plan, save, and invest 
and have no idea what the value of their money is. I guess they're, they're guided by the notion of full employment and stable prices, but you're saying something that's even more, I don't know, more uh, concrete, like a Taylor Rule or something like that. Well, indeed, I am a fan of the Taylor Rule. I, I have not put into any legislation to impose the Taylor Rule on the Fed, but we have wanted greater specificity on what is the monetary policy of the Fed and when are they going to stick to it. Uh, I want something that is going to be more predictable as opposed to improvisational. And I think that history would show, any kind of review of the economic history of America, would show that when the Fed followed, most closely followed, a rules-based policy, particularly the Taylor Rule, it is associated with periods of sustained, uh, strong economic growth. When monetary policy becomes more improvisational, that tends to be associated with periods of weak economic growth and greater periods of uncertainty. So we have put into a piece of legislation called the FORM Act that would ensure that the Fed at least has to communicate to the American people what their policy is. And if they choose to deviate from it, which they can at any time, uh, Congress has the ability to uh, call them in to testify to the American people to say, why did you change your mind, and what is the new, um, what's the new process, what's the new formula? Right, right. It's, it's, again, it's, uh, it's a matter of communication and sunshine more than anything else. Right. Now, you, while, you were also, while you were here in New York, you also met with uh, Donald Trump, who uh, you've endorsed as a GOP presidential candidate. How, how did that go? What did you guys talk about? Well, I don't care to give a blow-by-blow -blow description, uh, but I would say this. The whole purpose of it was to talk about the Financial Choice Act. Uh, like a number of Republicans, there are times when I have disagreed with things that Mr. Trump has said or Mr. Trump has done. I disagree with just about everything Hillary Clinton has said and done, but be that as it may, one area of commonality I have with Mr. Trump is we both realize that Dodd-Frank is a huge impediment to economic growth. Dodd-Frank is keeping people in poverty. Dodd-Frank is helping contribute to the worst small business climate and entrepreneurial climate we've had in America in perhaps uh, 20 years, and that it needs to be replaced. So I was briefing him on the Financial Choice Act. And um, my crystal ball is a little fuzzy about who's going to be elected our next president in November. But should it be Donald Trump, then we're going to have some common ground on, on moving beyond Dodd-Frank. And I wanted him to be familiar with the Financial Choice Act, and that was the purpose of the meeting. How would, how, if he offered you a job in the cabinet, they say, as Treasury Secretary, <laughs> as my, my colleague Gina Chong pointed out, um, what would you say? I think I'm kind of happy with the job I have, and uh, uh, laughter is ensuing. It is nothing I have ever thought about, contemplated, dreamed about. I'm happy to be chairman of the House Financial Services Committee. Thank you very much. <laughs> now, now, just going back on the on the on the Financial Choice Act, I mean, it'll be quite difficult to get the the, the bill passed in the current form. But I mean, could you see? Oh, I think it would be impossible yeah. in this Congress, but it is important. Our speaker, Speaker Paul Ryan, has challenged us to be a party, not just of opposition, but of proposition. And I think it's important to let the American people know that should they trust uh, Republicans with the levers of governance at the White House and in Congress, that this is the policy or something along the lines of this policy uh, that would be economic growth for all, bank bailouts for none, a trade-off of private capital for 
uh, taxpayer funds, uh, bankruptcy instead of bailout, that that would be the policy. And so we want to get the policy out there. We want to get the principle out there. We want to get the bill out there. And we're hopeful that early in the next year, this is something that could go before Congress and actually mm-hmm. be enacted into law uh, with a more enlightened administration than the one we have now. Are there parts of it you think that could be carved out that would actually have more uh, commonality with both you know, po- folks on the left and the right that might be more palatable to get through Congress? Well, right now it's, it's challenging to have a reasonable discussion with Democrats on Dodd-Frank because too many of them view Dodd-Frank uh, to be akin to um, something that was chiseled into tablets that came down from Mount Sinai. I mean, it's, it's very, very unfortunate, but it's kind of a knee-jerk reaction. It's brand protection. It's part of the president's legacy. So regrettably, many Democrats see clearly the ideology, but they don't see the pain on the faces of the people who are suffering in this lackluster uh, economy. So I think, you know, the most strident leftist voices in the Democrat Party, the radicals uh, like Elizabeth Warren and like Bernie Sanders, has made any kind of uh, reasonable approach to Democrats almost impossible. What, what about housing? I mean, you know, you've, you've done a quite a bit on the Fannie Freddie replacement idea, and that does seem to be something that has not yet been tackled by Congress since 2008 in any sort of meaningful form. Well, regrettably, I thought I had a partner in, in fact, I was quite certain I had a partner at one time in Secretary Geithner yeah. wanting to get something done on behalf of the administration. It is quite clear that Secretary Liu, his successor, has zero interest in housing finance reform. Uh, again, it's a very important issue. It has to be tackled. I'm hopeful, again, with a new enlightened administration um, who um, may want to may tackle this issue. It's certainly a priority of, of mine. We can't continue to have a boom-bust bailout cycle in housing, and I fear that under this administration, and under what FHFA is doing, um, that many of the same mistakes that contributed to the last economic crisis uh, are being committed again. Yeah. And we simply don't want to have a federal government that is so dominant, and we don't want to have so many financial transactions backstopped by the federal taxpayer. According to the Richmond Federal Reserve, almost two-thirds of all transactions – in the financial sector of the economy are now backstopped either implicitly or explicitly by the federal government, and that's up about two-thirds since the passage of Dodd-Frank. That is the complete antithesis of market discipline uh, leading to increased risk within the system. So we have to tackle housing finance reform. It's just unfortunate that this president has no desire to do it. Well, it, it's also one of these things, it's human nature when you're in the boom, when everything's going well, people tend not to deal with the problems that they're storing up for the future. And it's, uh, it would be one of those things that I'd love to see both the right and left come together on and fix uh, for, you know, in some sort of sustainable fashion. Well, indeed, and uh, the, uh, the door's open, and I'm, I'm waiting for the phone to ring if Secretary Liu's listening to the program. <laughs> All right. Well, on that note, thank you very much, Congressman, for for, uh, chatting with us and uh, hope to see you, I guess, in Cleveland. Okay, great. Thank you very much for having me. No problem. Take care. Bye. Bye. Well, there you have it. A view of the financial industry and regulation from a guy who just might get a seat in the cabinet should Donald Trump win the presidency. 
Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back with another episode of The Exchange Podcast very soon. In the meantime, we hope you'll subscribe to The Exchange and other Reuters podcasts on iTunes. And if you like what you hear, let us know by reviewing The Exchange on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter, at Breaking Views, or me, at Rob Wancox. Adios, and thank you. Thank you.